Morning, church. Jude. Anybody else want to preach today? I wish it was one of those, like, you know, back in the old days of wrestling, at tag team matches. I could just go down to Jordan right now and just tag him, and he'd have to come up here and preach. No? You see, we do this thing called uh, verse-by-verse through the Bible preaching here, which means that you can't skip over any parts when you start a book. And not that we didn't know this was coming, but this is a really difficult message. Um, It's difficult in the sense that it's overtly negative. So if any of you are like, yeah, I'm just not up for that today, then you can bail out right now. No one's going to think anything of it. And... um, but uh, it's, a, it's a tough set of verses in verses 8 through 16 that we're looking at uh, today. So if, if, you're, uh, if you're up for it, just, just uh, get your Bibles open and get your notes ready, and here we go. Amen? Here we go. Well, let's start with some phrases. Let's think about phrases like uh, some people, those people, certain people, these people, or you people. That's a tough one. I mean, you can get canceled today for using phrases like those, but sometimes some people, certain people do indeed need to be called out. And that's, <laughs> uh, that's not, that's not going to help today. All right. So, and, that, and that's, that's what Jude does here in this letter. In this letter to the church, it's, what's, it's what we've seen in the first two uh, messages in this letter. Jude had referred in verse 4 to certain people, and he means to speak of them in a disparaging way. So when we hear those phrases and we go, that just hits my ears wrong, he means that. You know, this, this is a pejorative phrase. It, it's, it's an expression when he says certain people, or five times in this passage, he's going to say certain people. He means it in a contemptful way. And he does so in order to expose those who had crept into the church to undermine the gospel. And we're going to see in verse 4 how undermining the gospel uh, destroys unity in the church, how undermining the gospel disrupts the mission of the church. Everything, in fact, is going to come back to the centrality of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the life of the church and in the life of every Christian. And so that's what we saw. That was the setup in the first message. He used three Old Testament era examples to warn them about the seriousness of the threat, which we saw in last week's message. And in today's passage, he's doubling down to show that these people are what these people are all about. Again, it's an expression Three times you're going to say these or these people in this passage in verses 8, 10, 12, 14, and 16, which actually forms the outline of the five points that we're looking at today. And the takeaway for us, if you've already looked ahead to the notes, the takeaway is simple. Don't, don't, don't. Five times we're going to hear this. Don't be like those who resist God in all of the ways that a person can resist God. And in the language of the series... There are those who would want you to deconstruct your faith in an unhealthy and unhelpful way. There are those who would have you abandon the church to deny the living gospel, the life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ. There are those who would want to leave your life in rubble. And this is a warning passage and a tough one at that. 
As one preacher said, man, this is a no-holds-barred, no-punches-pulled, cage-match-style rebuke of ungodliness. (laughs) Yes, it is, Jordan. Yes, it is. You wish you were preaching this, didn't you? (laughs) All right, let's turn to Jude, and let's look at verses 8 through 16. Yet in like manner, these people, also relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. They are hidden reefs at your love feasts, and as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Don't be like certain people who resist God. The first of five don'ts is this. Don't presume upon him. Don't presume upon God. Verse 8, these people, like the examples in the previous verses, these are now relying on their dreams to come up with the things they've come up with, the teaching that they're foisting upon the church. They, they, they're putting a claim on having had visions that are authenticating their bogus teaching. In other words, the way we would say this, today is that these false teachers dreamed this stuff up. And so the consequence of that, Jude says, is threefold. Because they've come up with their own teaching, because they've dreamt this up on their own, they defile the the flesh. They're morally filthy. And we talked about that in some detail last week. They reject authority. And we're going to come back to that in one of our points here today where Jude expands on it, and they blaspheme the glorious ones or these celestial beings. And we'll come back to that point too. And so the initial recap at this very early point in the message, what Jude is saying is that these false teachers reject authority, distort the word of God and embrace immorality. That is the MO, the modus operandi. This is the way false teachers operate. And our aim, with the don't statements that are in front of us, our aim is not to be like them, not to fall for their teaching. How do we avoid this? 
Well, Jude illustrates what any faithful believer would do, and he does it in an, in, in an interesting way in that he's calling on us as believers to, to emulate this uh, celestial, this great celestial being, this angel of God, this archangel of God, Michael. What should we do? Do what Michael did. Verse 9. But when Michael, when the archangel Michael contending with the devils, he's in some kind of fight with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses. Now let's just pause for a second and let's all agree, this is a bit of a weird story. We okay with that? This, this is a strange story. In fact, this story is not told in any place in the scriptures. The inspired word does not give us this story. This is the only place in the inspired word of God where we read about this story. In fact, this story, we can't find it in any books whatsoever that are with us today, any ancient books. There's the scriptures, but of course, there's all kinds of other ancient books as well. Can't find any of those books, although there are some sources, some ancient sources that talk about a book that we don't have. The book was called The Assumption of Moses, and there are other references to this happening in these other books. So we don't have the book, but we have books that talk about the book having this story in it. So we can source it at least in that way. The fact that it's here, the fact that the Holy Spirit inspired it to be in the book of Jude means that it's a legit story. Now imagine for a moment, because here's what we have going on here. We have Michael, the archangel, perhaps the most powerful of all the celestial beings, and, um, and the devil, the other most powerful celestial being ever created. We have them going toe-to-toe in a fight. Now, by the way, they show up in other places, Michael and the devil uh, fighting with each other. We see it in the book of Daniel. We see it in the book of Revelation again. These two had a bit of a rivalry going on. But here in in Jude, we see they're contending, they're disputing. And I'm asking myself the question, because that sounds like a fight. Sounds like a real fight. And I'm wondering, is that actual fighting? Like, are we watching two celestial beings tossing each other around the atmosphere? Like, what are we even talking about? Like, I watch a lot of Marvel movies. I'm not like into all of them. But this is like Thanos and Thor going at it. This is what I'm thinking. And, and the prize, because this would be just, this would happen in Marvel as well. The prize is a corpse. So two super beings are having a fight over a dead body. And obviously that dead body has some value to it. I mean, Stan Lee thought this up, but it's here in the scriptures long before Stan Lee ever uh, lived. The word here though is, a less about fighting and more about argument. In fact, all of the language in this passage is more of a legal, uh, is, is more legal vocabulary. The same word, in fact, is used in Luke's gospel in Luke 9:46, where the disciples are arguing or disputing or fighting over who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So there's an argument going on. It's, it's just a war of words between the devil and Michael. And we can only speculate about why they'd be fighting over Moses' body. And that isn't, really, um, that isn't really salient to Jude's point here. What Jude wants us to see, there's no sense speculating over the fight itself, but what Jude wants us to see is that Michael didn't presume. He didn't presume any of the power that he had as, as 
perhaps the second most or the most or one of the most powerful celestial beings that God made. He didn't presume or he didn't, the, the word there could be dare. He didn't dare to pronounce a blasphemous judgment or an accusation against the devil. As powerful as he was, and as confident as he was in the rightness of what he knew about the devil, he himself didn't think he had it in him to say, hey, devil, I'm accusing you. He didn't presume that power, but said instead, the Lord rebuke you. And you see in the text that's in quotes because Michael's quoting scripture. He's going back to Zechariah chapter three, where the Lord was having a dispute of the, with the devil and the Lord himself said, the Lord rebuke you. So Michael, Michael quotes scripture to talk to the devil about this dispute over the body. You see, presumptuousness, here, here's, here, when we're presumptuous, this is what we are. And this is just a lift out of, you, you can look at any dictionary. You're going to get a definition that looks like this. It's not a good word, by the way. It's a negative word. You don't want to be presumptuous, but it means to be overly bold, to be forward, even, even in, in being forward, to have a sense of entitlement about how great you are, how much you know. It, it's to come across as arrogant and in your arrogance to come across as rude. And Michael knew his place. In fact, last week we saw this in, in verse six. You can look back to it. We, we saw these angels who did not stay within their own positions of, of authority. And in contrast to that, what Michael is demonstrating two verses later is that he did stay as powerful as he was. He did stay in his own position of authority. Several commentators, in fact, would say that Michael himself, a created being, refused to assume the prerogative of God in condemning the devil. He knew that wasn't his place. And that's the question. That's the first question as we think about false teaching, as we think about how there's sometimes is this little creep that comes in to undermine the gospel in our lives. Do we presume in any aspect of our lives, do we presume to know better than God? And in effect, when we do that, when we question God in a way that, that questions his authority or his will in our lives, are we actually taking the place of God ourselves, even becoming in effect our own God? We resist God when we presume upon him, believing we deserve, we deserve what we have or we deserve more than what we have. We come across as arrogant. We take liberties with God. I wonder if the crux of the issue for us is that we believe that God in some way, God has not lived up to our expectations of him, especially as it relates to what he's given us in our lives or what he has not given us in our lives. God has not lived up to our expectations of what he should be or what he should do or what he shouldn't have done. There's a wonderful book, and I've put it into the list, the, the list of references that's in the notes. It's by Gene Edwards, and it's called The Prisoner in the Third Cell. And it's, it's a little, I'll just describe it as a novella. It takes the biblical story, expands it out. It, it's a very quick, it's a historical read. It's, it's very creative. 
but it's exploring John the Baptist's short life. John could have been one of those who said, God didn't live up to my expectations. As he, just in his early 30s, was in prison for doing exactly what God had asked him to do. Ended up being beheaded for doing exactly what God had asked him to do. And Edwards goes through that and and really punctures, punches this point. Has God failed to live up to my expectations? So again, in the language of the series, the motive behind the deconstruction of some believers, how they deconstruct their faith, the motive behind it is the reconstruction of a small G God who meets my personal expectation, who, who is shaped either in my image or in the image of a God that is satisfying to me. And it's a distortion of the gospel. Don't, don't, don't presume upon God. God is overall, his will is best. And all of this, of course, hints at this second one. Don't distort his word. Don't distort the gospel. In contrast to Michael's humility, notice verse 10. These people, these people, please read it the way Jude intended. These people blaspheme, or you can just put the word slander in there. It's divine slander. They blaspheme all that they do not understand. They don't understand the spiritual realm because they're not spiritual. They don't understand this unseen powers. People, a lot of the time, listen, most of us don't even think about this, especially in the Western world. We don't even think about the fact that we're operating in the spiritual realm. People don't know what they're messing with when they oppose God. They don't know what they're messing with when they're doing the devil's bidding. You know, you know, at the surface level, and because this is a letter written to believers in a church over a problem that's in the church, a problem of teaching in the church, but not just a problem of teaching, but a problem of authority. And people think they can have liberties to do what they want in the church, to oppose leaders, to oppose teaching that's orthodox and rooted in the word of God. We may think, you know, maybe, maybe you've been in a church, and this church has certainly gone through this on a couple of occasions. You might be in a church, and you see at surface level, this is a dispute about doctrine. This is a dispute about leadership in the church. And it's never just that. That's just the thing we see with our eyes. But behind the scenes, there is a spiritual war going on because these are the two critical issues that God cares about, that we are orthodox, that we believe the right things about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that we don't go up against his authority. It's a spiritual war. And these people blaspheme. They slander all that they don't understand. They don't even get it. And they're destroyed, he says. They're destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. They're driven by instinct rather than thinking it through, rather than a rational thought. Now you might think that it's, it's insulting to say these people or you people or certain people. Now he's calling them animals. It's not very culturally sensitive, not politically correct. 
And you can see as he's saying these things, people are reading this and all the poor snowflakes are melting, right? Because the words are so hard. They're driven by instinct rather than rational thought. This is to their own doing. As we'll see, it all starts though with the distortion of the word, changing what the word of God says to us, what God has said to us through his word. And again, Jude's concern here is inside the church. And this is something we have to hear this. And we set the series up in this way. But, but the, his concern is inside the church. His concern is not with the outside culture. And so if you're, if you're thinking, yeah, the culture around us has abandoned the word of God. I don't care. This is the culture we care about. This, this is the light of the world. This is the salt of the earth. This letter is written to a church. And so it, listen, our concern is inside the church, not the outside culture. He's not setting out to reform the Roman empire. He's making disciples in a local church. And, and you know, people outside the church, they can't even understand the word of God. They can't even understand it. This is, this is 1 Corinthians 2.14. Let's look at the verse. Here's what the apostle Paul said. The natural person, the unsafe person, a person that doesn't have Christ, doesn't have the Holy Spirit. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are folly to him. He thinks the Bible's foolish. That's everybody outside. And he is not able to understand them. Why? Because they are spiritually discerned. Unless you have the Holy Spirit, listen, unless you have the Holy Spirit in you, you can't get this. You might understand it cognitively, but you're never going to know that it's supposed to result in life change. You can't spiritually discern it without the Holy Spirit in your life. The, the, listen, the word of God is so precious to us. And it's only understood by the spirit. And we can't expect those who don't have Christ to ever understand it. Even, even when we come to our own understanding, our own, our own salvation, even at that moment that we became a follower of Jesus Christ and exercised faith in him, even at that moment, it wasn't because of us. It wasn't because we came to this enlightened understanding of the, of the cross of Jesus Christ and the atonement and, and we understood our own sinfulness it wasn't because we understood that Jesus was raised on the third day. It wasn't because we figured this out all on our own and it suddenly all made sense to us. And so we decided to become a Christian. That's not the way it played out. We may think it did. We may, we may have experienced it in that way. But that only happened because the Holy Spirit first came upon us to give us that illumination of the scriptures and that understanding of the gospel. That only happened because he moved in our lives to bring us to that point of belief. As we see it, yeah, we understood the gospel. We repented of our sin and we exercised faith. But then Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.8 that even that faith is a gift of his grace. That God gave us the ability to believe. Don't distort his word. These false teachers had distorted the word. 
And while an unbeliever may not yet grasp the word, it's essential that we as believers are vigilant in knowing the word, studying the word, reading the word, living out the word, and proclaiming the untainted word of God. Because the danger for all of us in our personal lives, in churches, the drift is always happening unless we're vigilant with the word of God. The drift toward distortion happens in one of three ways. And if you're taking notes, just write down, first of all, the word neglectfulness. The distortion of the word of God happens because of our neglectfulness. We don't read it. We don't study it. We don't take it seriously. There are probably many in this room that this is the first time you've opened your Bible since the last time you were in this room. That's not good. That's not, it's not nearly good enough. I can't, listen, I'm going to feed you a good meal today, but I can't feed you enough for a full week. And some of you don't even come every week. You got to feed yourself. Neglectfulness, we don't read it. We don't study it. We don't take it seriously. A Daryl Dash who has spoken here. He's a pastor down in Toronto, a good friend of our church. A link, uh, there's a link in the notes to an article that he wrote. And he said this, a Christian who remains stuck with an elementary understanding of, the do- of doctrine is a Christian who is in danger of abandoning Christ. We could put the word deconstructing there. He explains further in the article, quoting um, Guthrie, he says this, life itself, and this is why this is so important, Life itself has a way of forcing us to deal with theology. That is what we believe sooner or later. The difficult experiences of life raise important questions about God and what he is up to. We especially must be focused in the deeper matters of the faith if we are to withstand the fire of persecution. Those who are shallow theologically manifest that superficiality in the face of strong challenges that oppose continued commitment to Christ. In other words, we have to learn the word of God. We have to lock down our theology before we face the difficulties of life. Otherwise, those difficulties of life are going to bring the house down. We've got to learn it. We've got to know it. You got to get into the word for yourself or you'll be in danger of distorting it when you need it most. That's a ne- neglectfulness. Here's the second one, carelessness. Carelessness is we read it, but misuse it. We fail to study it with any care. I'm going to tell you the, the dumbest Bible study question of all time. Ready? You eager for this? The dumbest. Some of you are going to feel dumb because you've asked it before as a leader in a group. I know that. I don't know who you are, so I plausible deniability here today. Here's the dumbest Bible study question of all time. Let's go around the circle and share what this verse means to us. I don't care what it means to you. What it means to you allows for a distortion of the word of God. 
It's, it's careless Bible study at, at the very least. What it, what it means to you is important. We call that application. Okay, what it means to you and how you're going to work it out in your life is application. It's very important. It is never the first question. You can't start with that. We're going to back end that after we've said some other thing, answer some other questions. Here's how we get to what it means to you, how you apply it in your life. What did the original author mean when he was writing to the original audience? That, in fact, is is pretty much the most important question we're going to ask. What did Jude mean when he wrote to that church in the first century? That's the critical question. What does the passage mean in its context? What does this sentence mean in light of the near context of Jude? What does it mean in the greater context of the book? What does it mean in the greater context of the New Testament and of the entire Bible? These are the important questions. Scripture interprets scripture. How can we then, once we've learned that principle, what what the author intended for the audience, once we've distilled what that principle is, we can then transfer it across the ages into our own lives to say, this is what it means to me. This is how I live it out. It's interpretation and then application, not application leading to a fanciful interpretation. All right. Neglectfulness, carelessness, maliciousness, maliciousness. This is someone who reads and studies the Bible with the express intent of altering the interpretations to suit cultural trends and or personal desires. The classic line here is that's what the Bible meant then, but it doesn't mean that now. And they do this in an attempt to affirm a certain lifestyle or a certain moral choice. And there's a lot of this kind of stuff going on every day by those who would call themselves Christians, but are false teachers who are distorting the word of God to suit their own interpretations, their own desire to live their life in a certain way. So neglectfulness and carelessness and maliciousness, let's not distort the word of God. Here's the judgment. If you do, woe to them. The word woe just means, I hope disaster comes upon you. Okay, that's what it means. Don't be pronouncing woes on people. I hope your life goes off the rails. I hope you run off a cliff. I hope the ground opens up and swallows you whole. Okay, that's woe. I warned you about this message when we started, didn't I? Told you it was going to be heavy. Woe to them. Three Three more Old Testament examples he gives here. We'll just go through these really quickly. We could spend a lot of time on each one of them, but for they walked in the way of Cain, you know, Cain, son of Adam and Eve. Cain Cain was the son of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were the first two people to sin, but Cain somehow becomes the poster boy for how to do sin. Like, like Cain, Cain's doing night school. He's, he's doing, he's doing Ted talks on how to be a good sinner. Like Cain had it locked in. And so walking in the way of Cain is to walk like a really, really good sinner. 
Cain wouldn't make appropriate heartfelt sacrifice to God. He was filled with envy and hatred, among other things. Philo, a first century Greek philosopher, uh, sorry, Jewish philosopher said that he was a man enslaved to self-love. And by the way, self-love is a 21st century buzzword. A dominant characteristic of deconstructionists today. They're filled with self-love. They walked in the way of Cain. They abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. He took money. Balaam took money from the king of Moab. Moab wasn't happy about Israel's rising power. Israel was making their way to the promised land. The king of Moab wanted to slow them down. So he hires Balaam, who is a prophet. And he says to Balaam, I'm going to pay you. But what I want you to do is go to the nation of Israel. And I want you to curse them. And every time, three times, three times, he goes to curse Israel. And every time he opens his mouth, only blessing comes out. Three times, he's just pronouncing blessing. He says, I can't even help myself. But he kept taking money for it. And he eventually did curse Israel and he found a way to trip them up. Balaam himself ended up being judged. Don't mess with God. Don't mess with his plans. Don't mess with his people. Here's the third one. They perished in Korah's rebellion. Korah's rebellion, uh, again, in the wilderness. And Korah decided he had enough of Moses and Aaron and their leadership and 250 of his buddies, a faction within Israel staged uh, a coup d'etat or sought to stage a coup d'etat against Moses to ditch him and to take the people back to Egypt. And well, that was when the ground opened up and swallowed them all whole. And for every one of them, judgment fell because they distorted the word of God. No power moves, no seeking after gain, no running headlong into sin, no distorting of the word for our own advantages. There's a third one. Don't chase after the wind. Jude waxes poetic here with, with metaphors describing the character of those who had crept into the church and who were leading people away. He says, uh, verse 12, they are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. So notice they're inside the church. They're, they're moving. And in fact, there's an indication with the next phrase, they're shepherds feeding themselves, that they've worked their way into leadership where they're influencing the church. But they're shepherds who are only feeding themselves. They're only taking care of their own needs. Ezekiel had, had spoken similarly about the shepherds of Israel who are only shepherding themselves. The love feast, by the way, was a meal shared as part of the church gatherings. Think um, Baptist potluck or even just the meals you have with your small groups. Uh, but it would always include the Lord's table as part of it, which we're going to celebrate here this morning. But they would have a whole meal and they would take the Lord's table as part of all of that. And it was an important time for the church gathered together to share a meal together, to share in genuine fellowship, koinonia fellowship with one another. But at these meals, notice they're hidden reefs. Reefs are catastrophic to boats. It's, it's coral or rocks that, that will protect uh, a sound or a bay, a, a natural harbor. But unless you know where they are, they can wreak havoc on boats, uh, piercing into the hull and putting everyone on board in peril. 
That's what false teachers are. They're just below the surface. You don't really notice that they're there, but if you just hit it right, it'll tear open the hull and down you go. They're hidden reefs. They're waterless clouds swept along by the winds. In the Middle East, rain is everything. In the, in the West, we, we fight wars over things like oil. That's what's so important to us. In the Middle East, they'll fight wars over water and access to water because water is life. The clouds would float in. If you know the geography, Israel stands at the eastern edge of the Mediterranean Sea. And the clouds would roll in as the, as the winds blew them in off the Mediterranean over the land and people would watch in times of drought, they would watch, they'd see the clouds rolling in and hope, what? Hope that rain would fall on the land and water their crops. But the farmers would watch desperately as waterless clouds just floated on by empty promises and vain hope. Jude's saying that's what the false teachers offer, nothing. They are fruitless trees in late autumn. What's the point? It's, it's apple season. We're going to go to the orchard. We're going to pick some apples, eye to the sky. We're going to fill our bushels and take them home and take pictures. We're going to love it. But how horrible if we show up at the orchard and row upon row of apple trees with no apples. Well, that's what these false teachers are. They're fruit trees with no fruit. Verse 13, they're wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. No control, no ordered, untamed. They're wandering stars, Jude says. Not stars so much as planets, which in the first century were perceived to have no fixed position. The star doesn't move, but the planets do. So they were unreliable for navigation, whereas the stars helped because they remained fixed in the night sky. False teachers are moving all over the place and are, are a guide to no one and lead nowhere. Their condemnation is assured, Jude tells us, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. And you get the point. Five times over, False teachers are empty shirts. Their message is based on nothing but their own dreams and imaginations. Their promises are never to be fulfilled. In contrast to this fleeting, self-imagined DIY religion that they're promoting, the gospel that we believe is an ancient truth that God himself has given to us. Our forms change. The forms of the church change. The kind of music that we sing or, or the way we dress or how we gather and the programs we offer, these things change with the times. They, they have to move with the culture. But the rock upon which we stand is Jesus Christ and his word. And that doesn't change. It hasn't changed. You can trace what we believe through all of the centuries, all the way back to the first century when the apostles wrote to the church fathers of the second and third centuries, to all those faithful preachers of God's word through all of the centuries to today, the gospel we preach is ancient. Though the forms are contemporary, 
The story that the Bible tells is humanity's true meta-narrative. It's the big story. It's the thing that explains everything. The worldview that we need is that of a creator, the creator who made everything, of the king who is sovereign over all, and of the one whose promises are sure. To pursue anything else, as Solomon said, is chasing after the wind. The book of Ecclesiastes is, is Solomon's personal journal, if you will, or reading his diary, his innermost thoughts about what his life has been like. It has a wonderful turn at the end of it, but in the midst of it, Ecclesiastes 2, he writes this, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labor. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything, everything was meaningless. The chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. The sad reality is there's a lot of people writing that very same journal entry today spending their whole life chasing after things that don't matter. So many, even so many professing Christians who ought to know better. If you knew Ecclesiastes, you wouldn't run after those things. If you knew your Bible, you wouldn't. This is a distortion of the gospel that has gripped your heart and it's, it, it has you chasing after the wind. Chasing after what the world offers, sex, money, possessions, influence, success, status, power. Waterless clouds, fruitless trees, chasing after the wind. Two more really quickly. There was so much in this passage. Don't rebel against him. This is an odd reference from Jude in verse 14 because he's... he's Quoting something that's not in the scriptures. It's from another source, a book called First Enoch. He says this in verse 14. It was about these. It was about these, these false teachers, that Enoch's. Um, again, this is a passage that now becomes inspired scripture because it came out of a book that was not inspired, but the Holy Spirit inspires Jude to put it in his book. And here's the quote, consistent with some other things that we would read in the scriptures. It was about these that Enoch said, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000s of his holy ones, verse 15, to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And I think this passage, as I interpret it, as I think about what the original author intended for the original audience, I think it has something to do with ungodliness. What do you think? Yeah, that's as hard as Bible study is. The appeal is, is, not, is not to find yourself on the wrong side of the godly, ungodly divide. In other words, don't rebel against the Lord. Don't take up with the adversary. Don't fall for his lies. Don't go the way of the false teachers. Don't rebel against God. If you're in rebellion against God right now, repent before you leave the room. And finally this, don't pursue self-interest. 
And he sums it up with, again, another stinging verse. These are grumblers and malcontents. They're complainers. They're fault finders. And you just, you know, the Bible talks about grumblers and complainers so often. And, and there's so many of such people in churches, not ours, but like in other churches. You never want to be this kind of person. Nothing good is ever said of a grumbler and complainer. If that's you, repent. These false teachers are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. I mean, that alone is an apt description of the days we live in. People going like, I want to fulfill my own sinful desires. I'm going to live out my truth. Okay, I'm going to engage in a little self-love. I'm going to do what's best for me. And that's today. Calls them loud-mouthed boasters. So proud of how they're living, announcing their lifestyle to all without shame. He says they're showing favoritism, manipulating, coercing, recruiting, drawing others into their message so as to gain advantage at least in some small part for the false teachers, this is that they want to gain some financial advantage off of those they're persuading. And all of that to say the Christian life rightly understood and lived is one uh, not like that, but of self-denial. It's, it's, the Christian life is Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. I'm dead to myself. The Christian life is a humble life where the Apostle Paul says this in a beautiful Philippians chapter 2 passage. Do nothing from selfish ambition. This is what Jesus modeled for us in giving his life on the cross. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And what if we just worked on that this week? Let each of you look out not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So it just can't be about me. If you're genuinely saved, like you're in Christ, it just can't be about you. Because when it is, you're resisting the Lord, you're resisting his work in your life, and it's something you simply don't want to do. Let me pray. Father, we, uh, we want to come before you uh, humbly right now to um, express our own heart to you, a heart of, of wanting to live the way that most reflects the gospel. And Father, the challenges are many. The temptations are great. Father, the false teaching is all around us. And so, God, I pray that, that you would indeed help us to live in this way as Christians. And if there's any who don't know Christ, that there would be a desire to repent in this moment, not go after the things of this world that are so empty, but to pursue you and your gospel, to find life. So, Father, thank you for speaking hard words to us, not just gentle words, not just easy words to receive, but, Father, Thank you for the hard word that you've spoken to us here today. We pray in Christ's name.